using one of the Bible we've provided there in the rows. You can open up to page 1011. I believe that's right. AP, check me out or somebody check me out and make sure that's right. I forgot to check this morning, starting a new book. So if you're using one of the, the black Bibles we provided there in the rows, you should be page 1011 because my thin line version usually matches that as well. Is that right? We're good. Thanks, James. All right, we're good. Very good. All right, I'm really excited about this series. I really appreciate Micah's intentionality just to choose songs that really highlight the, the truths that we're going to be meditating on. So Micah does a great job every week, volunteers his time. He's a busy guy. He's a, he's a dad. He works more than a 40-hour week every week. Uh, so that's, that's a gift to our church that Micah would serve in the ways that he does. So I'm just really thankful for him serving and, and even the intentionality that he puts in to choose uh, great songs that tune our hearts, not only to worship God, but for the word that we're about to receive. So thank you, Micah. On behalf of everybody, everybody let's give Micah a little love just for a minute. He isn't, he isn't looking for it. He doesn't do it for that reason, but uh, it's good to honor those who uh, deserve honor because of their love for Christ. So that's, that's Micah. Well, if you were to stroll by my house these days, you might notice some, some, some good things going on, okay? I've been working hard around my home, not only because we've been preparing for a baby and Marcia's had, you know, a task list a mile long that hopefully is slowing down now that we've had Jordan, okay? Um, but I have also been working hard outside of our home a couple of Saturdays ago, actually the day that Jordan was born. Uh, I found myself outside after going to Home Depot to gather some supplies. I planted, okay, now get, get ready for this. This is not too impressive for most of you, but for me, it's not bad, all right? So uh, two boxwoods, all right, little shrubs to go along with our other two boxwoods. Now, I don't want to tell you that I had to replace those because the two azaleas died last summer that I planted, but let's not worry about that. Uh, two boxwood shrubs, two potted beautiful flowers for my beautiful wife on Mother's Day, and I've been working really hard at sowing some grass seed in our front and backyard to patch up our spotty lawn, okay? So if you, if you roll by, you're going to see a couple spots that I actually dug up, got all down, nasty, dirty, APB proud, just pulling out the grass by the roots, getting it out of there so I could sow some fresh seed, and hopefully we're going to see some, some grass come to life. So if you're rolling down High Street, you can just kind of pray that that grass will pop up. It'll make me feel really good, and uh, you know, you could be a part of the journey with us. But, uh, but as I alluded to, every, every home project, especially if it's a do-it-yourself project, usually for me starts at Lowe's or Home Depot. Home Depot's a little closer to our house, so I usually go to Home Depot. And, and I love Home Depot, okay? I mean, now, I am not a handyman, all right? Uh, Marsha can attest to that. I, John can attest to that. In fact, when we first moved here, this, I'm just going to tell a story myself. Uh, I had to have John come over and help me hang our curtains, okay? So that's... Like if you, that's sad, right? That's kind of bad. You know, like I can hang a picture. Now I can hang curtains. Now I can actually paint. I can do several things. Uh, but, but nevertheless, I'm growing now that I'm a grown man. You know what I'm saying? Uh, growing in my abilities at, at home. Um, but, but I love to go to Home Depot because it's just a massive store. I mean, if you've ever been in Home Depot and you've kind of made an evaluation of what's there, you can basically build a house from scratch from all of the supplies that are in Home Depot. So if you want some lumber, you can go and you can get some lumber. If you want uh, bathroom supplies, tiles, ceramic, if you want lighting and windows, 
If you, look at, if you want electrical uh, supplies, um, whatever it may be, and of course on my recent trip, outdoor and gardening, all of these supplies are there for you at Home Depot, okay? So wives, go ahead and like nudge your, your, your husbands, okay? That project that's been you know, put off for about 10 months, tell him, take a trip to Home Depot, talk to the people, grab some you know, instructions from the internet, and give it his best shot. Actually, you may not want to do that, all right? You may not. You can, you, can, you can think about it. Um, but but uh, as we think about how Home Depot is, is, is a store with so many supplies and it's compartmentalized by these individual departments, one thing that we begin to realize as we evaluate our Christian faith is that sometimes our faith in God actually begins to resemble a store kind of like Home Depot. You say, well, Tanner, what do you mean? This is what I'm talking about. As I just described, all of the different departments in Home Depot are categorized by their particular uh, supplies, right? And so they are compartmentalized. You, you have the plumbing on one side of the store. You have the gardening on another side of the store. You have the lighting on another side of the store. And this is actually, and you know this to be true, this is actually what our faith looks like sometimes. We compartmentalize our faith to the point where there are some things that we really like about following Jesus. You know, we pray and, you know, we don't mind to come to church. It's really good to worship God. So we're kind of give Jesus, you know, prayer and worship and kind of hanging with our Christian friends and, you know, even praying for those who don't know. We'll do that, but, but don't ask too much for me, from me, Jesus, because if you ask of, of, of real sacrifice and real generosity, if you were to call me to go overseas, like we talked about the last four weeks, then you know what? I'm not sure my faith can handle that. Or, you know what, God, I'm not sure that I am willing to obey you in those areas of our life. So we compartmentalize what we want to obey and live out in our faith and what we do not. The same can be said of when we choose to live out our faith. I mean, we all know we're here this morning kind of looking good, all right? And, you know, Sundays, we may seem like we have most everything together in the church. But what about Monday? What about Wednesday? What's happening on Friday afternoon, Saturday night? Are we living out our faith in Jesus? And at all times of the day, when you first wake up, 6, 7 a.m., some of you wake up and much earlier than that, in the middle of your day, at the end of your day, are you totally giving yourself to God? Because what we see in the Gospels with Jesus and then what we find through the rest of the New Testament is that God is calling his people to live a life of faith that manifests itself in works at all times, all day, every day. So that's where we're going in this series, okay? We want to talk about a faith. Okay, this is why I'm wearing a t-shirt today, by the way, because I want you to see this, all right? We're talking about a faith that is all day, Every day, all right? So I'm gonna be, I might wear this again on a Sunday. I like wearing chucks to church, all right? So um, all day, every day. Now, now, why is this so important? Think about this. P- 
people want to see. I guarantee if I asked you if, you, if you said, you know what, my friends who are not yet believers in Christ may be a little skeptical of the church, they want to see that Christianity is relevant on the one hand, but they also want to see that Christians are sincere on the other hand. They want to see that, that faith matters for everyday life and that we who say we believe in Christ actually live out our faith in everyday life. Brennan Manning has a powerful statement in one of his books where he says this, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. So I want you to hear me this morning, and I want you to hear me very well. I want to make a bold statement. I believe if we, as God's people, the church, followers, disciples of Christ, I believe if that we will take the wisdom that's found in this little five-chapter letter known as the book of James, if we will take it and apply it to our lives, we will show the world that, number one, yes, Christianity is extremely relevant down to the very seconds of our lives. But then as we're living it out, they will see a sincerity about us to where they can't charge us with hypocrisy and this and that, okay? But, but they see that it really does make a difference in our lives. So this morning, we're going to cover one verse primarily, and then I'm going to give you a sweeping overview of the entire book of James. This is an intro sermon, and the title is All Day, Every Day, all right? All Day, Every Day. Now, the, the overarching point of James, we could say, would be this this encouragement that we can find from the book of James, that we should display a life of wisdom by living out our faith all day, every day. And I love the timing, okay? We try to, we try to plan our preaching calendar as, as specifically and as intentionally as possible. I believe this is a great follow-up to our global mission series from the last four weeks, because we've been talking about how God is a global God, how he wants the global glory of Jesus to spread as the waters cover the sea to every tribe, language, people, and nation. But we also realize that God has placed us here in Medford to live out our faith right where we are. And so how are we going to do that? Well, it's going to be waking up on Monday morning and living the life of, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the book of James is going to help us bring all of this together. So what I want to do is just give you two very simple encouragements, okay? Very, very simple encouragements as we introduce the book of James, okay? Number one, understand James is writing to his church scattered by persecution. Now, much of what I'm going to do today is going to be introductory material. And introductory material, it shouldn't be boring, okay? And it shouldn't be irrelevant because as we understand these background details, they help us more fully understand the overarching message of the book. So much of what I'm going to give you today is what you would find in a study Bible, okay? And if you don't own a study Bible, I want to encourage you to sacrifice a few cups of coffee. Okay, there it is again. I mentioned that last week, sorry. But, but sacrifice a few cups of coffee, maybe a lunch here or there, and save up $20, $30, $40. You can spend more than that if you want to, and get a good study Bible. We love the ESV study Bible. 
the version we use here in church, and it is an excellent resource written by uh, the, the leading scholars in the evangelical world. Okay, so pick up a good study Bible, because when you come to a book, you want to understand some major questions about the book. And so what are some of those questions? Well, first we want to ask, who is the author? Now, the very first verse says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this book is written by a man named James. And your first thought might be, well, is this the James who was a disciple of Jesus? One of the 12 disciples, one of the inner circle of Christ, Peter, James, and John. And it doesn't appear that this is that James. This James, most scholars believe, is the son of Joseph and Mary. Do those names ring a bell? Who happened to have a half-brother by the name of Jesus. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who at first did not believe in Christ. So you may be here today and you may be skeptical about who Christ is. Well, let me just tell you, you're in good company. Because John chapter 7, verse 5 says that even Jesus' brothers did not believe in him at first. But it was probably after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus when he appeared to his disciples, even more than 500 of them. I have to think his family was in on that as well. And James probably came to believe in Christ after that point. Then he quickly became a leader in the church of Jerusalem and a pastor there. So when we get to chapter 3, verse 1, we're going to see that James even numbers himself among teachers. He was a teacher of the Word of God. He was a shepherd of the people of God. So that's why then we find him writing, verse 1 continues, and he says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, who are the 12 tribes in the dispersion? This not only tells us who our audience is, but this gets us into the purpose of the book as well. Why is James writing this? Okay, so these two are tied together. James is writing to encourage and instruct his people to persevere in good works in spite of suffering. So what we find in the book of Acts, if you've read through the book of Acts, the first few chapters detail how that Peter and, and John are preaching the gospel and the church is exploding and growing in Jerusalem, so much so that they have to add deacons, at least prototype deacons in chapter 6. And one of those men was a man named Stephen who was full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit. And so he also was preaching Jesus amongst the people there, so much so that he was charged, persecuted, and killed, martyred for his faith in Acts chapter 7. So then the first few verses of Acts chapter 3 tell us that because of the persecution that was happening there in Jerusalem in those days, the early church fled out of Jerusalem into the areas surrounding Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria. And so James, as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, is writing to his scattered people, okay, the people of, 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 of Israel, the 12 tribes that have been scattered out into Judea and Samaria to encourage them that even in spite of looming persecution, they are to press forward in their faith in Christ, to reveal the sincerity of their faith by the engaging in good works. 
And so I love what, see, see, see how the background material helps? Are you already catching this? I mean, we can even read between the lines and conclude that James was a legit pastor, okay? And what do I mean by that? It's like James really loved his people. Because if we know James is riding from Jerusalem to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, what does that tell us? Where did James go when persecution hit? He didn't go anywhere. He stayed with his people who were still under the threat of persecution. We see this in Augustine when Rome was burning and falling and the Christians were being persecuted and Augustine of Hippo stayed in Rome to care for his persecuted people. But he not only cares for the people who were there, he also, his mind and his heart are on those who were scattered. So this is why he writes this letter to encourage them in their faith. And a final question we could ask is, when did he write this? Well, it seems that this is pre-Jerusalem council in Acts 15, early on in the scattering of the church. So most conservative scholars would say it's sometime in the 40s AD, not very long after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, which by the way, is part of an argument for the validity of the New Testament writings. They were written very, very early on. So we can't say, ah, the New Testament, it was written three centuries later. You can't buy a word of it. No, 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 no. The early books of the New Testament were written in the 40s, 50s, and 60s AD. So these are some of the questions that we need to ask. Who is the author? Who were the recipients? Why did he write the book? When did he write the book? And what does the book say? So that question then, what is the content? What are the major themes? That takes us to our second very simple, I told you they're very simple, very simple encouragement for you this morning, all right? And I hope you will take this to heart. Allow these truths to penetrate every area of your life, every day of your life. So as we work through James chapter 1, verse 2, all the way to chapter 5, verse 20, a choice will happen in your soul at every turn. You will either hear these words and say, you know what, I believe that, I'm going to live that for the glory of God, or you're going to say, you know what, man, I'll take a backseat on that, I'll pass, I'll let someone else live that out, and you will choose to disobey God. So the encouragement is to allow these truths to penetrate our hearts so that we would live them out all day, every day. What are the major themes of the book? Okay, so number one, the work of God in Christ. We always want to start with God. Our knowledge of God is foundational for everything in our lives. And as we work through these five chapters, we're going to learn a lot about God. It says that God is the giver of every good and every perfect gift, chapter one. So as we work through the book, we're going to see that God gives wisdom. God gives salvation. God is giving his people a kingdom. He gives mercy. He gives grace. He gives healing. God even gives us our life, chapter four. The fact that you are breathing right now and your heart is beating is because God, this very moment, is sustaining your life. God is the giver of every good gift. God is also one. Chapter two, verse 19, there is one God. God is unified in himself. God is a relational God. When we hear about Abraham, we're gonna hear that Abraham was called a friend of God. Are you a friend of God this morning? God wants to be in a close, intimate relationship with you, so much so that he could call you his friend. 
God is jealous for us. I can't wait till we get to chapter four, verse five. It says that he yearns, speaking of God, God yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. God is the judge, God is father, and Jesus, chapter two, verse one, is the Lord of glory. Now, as we work through the book of James, on first appearance, it doesn't seem that Jesus gives much airtime to Jesus and his work on the cross. And on the surface, that would be true. We don't have any mammoth statements of the, the sacrifice of Christ, the substitutionary death, the righteousness that was exchanged for our unrighteousness. We don't have these very clear statements on the gospel, but James is writing in light of Jesus and his work. So as we read through James, what we're going to find is that the book of James actually drips with the wisdom of Jesus on every single page. I mean, just get acquainted with the wisdom of Christ, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, and you're going to see that James is going to allude to the teaching of Jesus some, some scholars say up to 36 different times throughout his letter. So as a good kind of devotional practice this week, why don't you go read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that's the Sermon on the Mount, and then follow along closely as we read the book of James because James was so influenced by his half-brother, knowing his teachings, that he just, we see him flow them out uh, time and time again. So our knowledge of God is foundational. It undergirds all of these other themes that we're going to look at. Number two, this is a major one, faith works. Faith works. Now, throughout the history of the church, you need to understand that there has been quite a controversy over the book of James. James has been a polarizing book. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that James is a quite strawy epistle, okay? In other words, it's a, it's a letter made of straw. It's a featherweight epistle. And why did he say that? It's because, like I said, he isn't articulating these great doctrines of justification by faith and, and speaking of Christ's work on the cross again and again and again. And in fact, there's, in chapter two, an apparent Note the word apparent. An apparent contradiction between Paul and James because James is going to flat out say, if you, unless you are justified by works, you're not really in the faith. But to conclude that Paul and James contradict one another is to actually misunderstand them both. Both Paul and James would agree that a person is justified by faith in Christ alone, and then that faith, because it's legit and sincere, and we are singing these songs. I mean, the, the first century church may not have sung, I am not the same anymore, but they could have sang that very song that we sang this morning, because when Jesus invades our life, we're truly not the same anymore. Our faith is going to be worked out in good works. So justification by faith is being justified before God, but our good works prove that our faith is sincere, and that's how other people see that our faith is sincere in Christ. So James is going to, to press for consistent devotion to Jesus. And as a pastor, I love this. Man, we pray every Tuesday at our elder meetings that our church would be a church that loves God more than anything. So one of James' favorite words in this letter, we'll see it at least two times, is where he says that some people are double-minded. The Greek word is disukos, twin-souled. 
It's as if they're two different people. Hey, I'm going to live for Jesus a little bit over here, but not so much over here. So he's pressing for a sincere devotion to Christ. He wants us to be fully obedient to God's law so that we live out our faith in good works. One of the most astounding facts about the book of James as we read through is that of the 108 verses, 54 of them contain imperatives, all right? So I'm no, I'm no physicist, okay? I'm no here math professor like Burris back there, right? Church planner Charlestown, check out his church. Um, but, but I am smart enough to know that 108 divided by two is 54. Isn't that right? We good? Okay, so, so half of the verses in James compare, uh, uh, contain instruction for us to live out our faith, I mean, I can just look at, I can look at one page. Be patient. Do not grumble. Be steadfast. It's on every line, almost, of the book. And so James would agree with John Wesley. I love this quote, who said this. He was the founder of the Methodist movement. He said, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. (laughs) You see that? It's it's like every second of our lives, we are to be working out our faith in Christ. And we should be zealous, Paul would say, zealous for good works. Don't be so consumed with grace that you think that grace means that we can just sit back, chill, have our ticket to heaven punched, and it doesn't move us to good works. It always leads us to good works. So James says, work out your faith. Number three, he's gonna talk about being steadfast under trial. We've already talked about how that these tribes, these, these people, the church in Jerusalem were scattered and out into the dispersion, as it was called. And so James uh, wants to to. to to tell them to press on, be steadfast, persevere, even when you're experiencing trials and persecution and suffering. And listen, I don't know what, what this might look like in your life, but I know we all go through difficult times. I know we all go through trials. And James has a very good word for us. He actually begins his letter and he ends his letter with encouragements to be steadfast when we experience trials in our lives. Number four. He's going to talk about relationships in the church. This is really good for us. I mean, we we know, think about this, and you know this in your family, you know this in our church. When you get stressed, just tell me if this is true. When you get stressed in your life, that stress usually causes sin to surface all the more. Now, let me nuance what I just said. Stress can lead the sin in our lives to surface all the more, okay? So I'm not blaming our sin on our stresses, but I'm saying that our stresses, that heat in our life, will often expose what's in our heart, and often what's in our heart is not always godly, but it's simply, you know this, right? You know this in your family, you get stressed out, you start having conflict, you start, you know, biting against one another, jealousy creeps up, selfish ambition creeps up, our tongue gets a little loose, and then it becomes a fire, James will say. So James is going to address what it looks like to have relationships in the church. When we 
here the book of James, he's gonna say brothers, beloved brothers, again and again and again. So every time, it might be a good practice. This is we're working through James. Every time you see the word brothers, which means in the Greek siblings in a family, it could be translated brothers and sisters. Whenever you see that, why don't you just underline that because the book of James is written to a church and it highlights how our relationships should be in the church. Number five, here's another practical one. Riches, poverty, and justice. Two major passages address this. Chapter two, verses one through 13, address the injustice of partiality, showing favoritism to one person over the other, and in this case, it's the rich and the poor. And then also, in chapter five, verses one through six, it addresses the injustice of oppressing the poor. And so what James will tell us is that our perspective of God which influences our perspective of people is going to necessarily influence how we view riches, poverty, and justice. So get ready because James has quite a bit to say about that. Now, all of this, he is writing a book of wisdom. And this wisdom is to lead us to maturity in Christ. So let me just ask you this morning. This is a tough question. Would people consider you wise? When people look at your life, if they just were able to hang out with you, would they say, you know what? That's a wise person. That's someone that I can pattern my life after because their life is so much patterned after Jesus. That's what James is after here. This book is called by some wisdom literature. It has a lot in common with the book of Proverbs. The themes that surface in the book of James on the tongue and even down to nitty-gritty details like uh, planning your calendar, all right? All of these items surface in the book of James. And so some people say that wisdom can be defined as knowledge applied to the glory of God. And I think that's a pretty good definition. Wisdom is taking what we know to be true of God and the world that he's made in our lives, and it's putting it into practice for his glory. That's what wisdom is. So James wants to see his church grow in wisdom, grow to maturity, that they might glorify God with their lives. And then you say, well, Tanner, how do we acquire this wisdom? How do, we, how do we make this happen by God's grace at work in us? Well, James is going to tell us to make prayer a priority in your life. He tells his church this in chapter one. He talks about prayer in chapter four, and then he extends, uh, spends some extended time in chapter five addressing prayer. And, and here's another thing I love about James, okay? Church history would tell us that James can exhort his church to pray because he himself was a praying pastor. All right, so, so that's kind of one of, the, one of the blessings, but also one of the weighty responsibilities of being a teacher, which James in chapter three, verse one is gonna say, not many among you should be, uh, try to be teachers, brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You say, well, why is that? Because if we're telling others to live a certain kind of way, then we better be doing that ourselves. But James was a, a man of prayer. His nickname in the early church was 
old camel knees. Okay, we've talked about this before at Redemption Hill. Can you imagine why? I mean, it's kind of funny, right? Old camel knees. What's that? Hey, a camel is one of my favorite animals now. All right? I ain't gonna lie. Because, because why? Because a camel, for, for him to sit down and get up and chill out and even rest and sleep, he has to get down on his knees, right? And so he spends a lot of times to where his knees are calloused. And James' knees apparently were calloused from praying so much to God for his people, for the mission of God in Jerusalem and abroad. So James is going to say, depend on God through prayer. Live out a life of wisdom by depending on God through prayer. So what I want to do is this. In light of this introduction, I want you to listen to the book of James. Okay, we've never done this before at Redemption Hill, but I think it's a very good practice, and I want to give you a couple of reasons why it's a good practice, okay? Five chapters. One is, this is how the original audience would have heard this letter. Same for Paul's letters in Colossae and Philippi and Ephesus. They would have gathered in a house church, and they would have heard this letter read in one sitting. So I think it's good for us not just to read a few verses, shut our Bibles, but to actually read and listen to all of it together. But then number two, it provides context for all of the individual parts. So let me just give a pop quiz real quick. How many of you have heard of that famous passage on faith and works before in chapter two? Anybody heard of that in James? Okay, that's, raise your hands really high just so we can get a little visual. Okay, that's, that's a lot of you. Now, how many of you, be honest, okay, we're in church after all. I mean, we're always in the presence of God. I hate when people say that. I'm sorry I said that. All right, that was stupid. Um, how many of you, how many of you knew, or how many of you know the context that James is writing those instructions on faith and works out of? What precipitated, what led him to speak about faith and works? What does he talk about just before? Anybody know? Raise your hand if you know, really high. That's what I thought. He's writing about partiality, right? He's writing about how people treat one another in the church, creating distinctions among people. So, so if we want to understand what he's saying about faith and worship, we should probably understand what he's saying just before that. It might actually influence how we view people when people walk into our church on a Sunday morning. And then finally, a third reason I think it's pretty good. It keeps us from skipping over valuable parts of Scripture. So if I read correctly in 2 Timothy 3, it says all Scripture is given by God. So that means every single word is profitable for our lives. So what I want to invite you to do, actually, I don't want you to read along. I just want you to listen because that's how the early church would have heard it. They would have just listened to these words. So I pray that God would give us meekness, and anticipation over the book that James wrote to his church. It goes like this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, is that anybody around here? 
If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted. When you're tempted this week, know the words of James. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you say to the one who wears the gold ring, 
You sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, hey, you go and stand over there or hey, you can just sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has God not chose those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not murder, also said, do not commit adultery. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. But here's good news. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now he goes into faith and works. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to him, hey, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And faith apart from it works is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. You show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by faith when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she hid the messengers and sent them out another way? That's in the book of Joshua, by the way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. 
Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, but it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of that same God. From out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? We asked that question a few minutes ago, right? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where selfish ambition and jealousy exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from heaven is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Chapter four, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns? He yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. But Redemption Hill, hear these five words. But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you are a judge of the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one judge and one lawgiver, he who is able to save and to destroy. So who are you to judge your neighbor. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a little profit. For you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you appear for a little time and then, and then vanish. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. For whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits patiently for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of patience and suffering, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. James had read his Bible once or twice, okay? You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Who said that? first. Yeah. So that you may not fall under condemnation. 
Is there anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of a righteous person will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah, he was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed that it might not rain on the earth. And for three years and six months, it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever turns a sinner from their wondering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. These words were written for our instruction. They were penned that we as followers of Jesus might display a life of wisdom by living out our faith all day, every single day. Let's pray that God would help us live these truths. Father, we are so grateful for your word that is life to us. It's able to save our souls. And so God, I pray that we wouldn't have just heard this today, but we had heard it with meekness, with humility, that we would be sparked to get into your word every single day, that we might live it out every single day. So Lord, as we embark on this journey of the book of James, would you impress these truths on our hearts? Would you fill us with your spirit that you have made to dwell in us that we might glorify you every single day. God, we thank you for Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross that makes all of this possible. It's in his name that we pray, amen.